Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Hi everyone, uh, thanks for joining us today and welcome to today's ODI Friday lunchtime lecture. Uh, I'm Jonathan Wilson, I'm a consultant here at the ODI and I'll be introducing the talk today and our presenter. So today's talk will be presented by Aidan Pepin and it's titled uh, The Data We'll See You Now. And this is based off a report that he and his colleagues published in October last year. Uh, Aidan's presentation, as I'm sure you'll all be aware, involves the datification of health with a focus on the significant consequences for people and society. Just a little bit about Aidan's background before I let him take over. Uh, he's a senior researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute. The Ada Lovelace Institute is an independent research body with a mission to ensure data and AI work for people and society. Aidan leads on public engagement projects, convening a diverse range of voices to understand and address the societal impacts of technology across a range of sectors from health and biometrics to data governance. Uh, prior to this, Aidan has a comprehensive background in data and health. Just a final thing uh, to touch on some health, housekeeping before we get started. Um, as you would have seen in the um, page when you arrived, please um, just mute your mics and turn your video off uh, while Aidan is giving his presentation. Uh, there will be a chance afterwards um, to ask questions where you're welcome to um, put on your, your video and your mic um, to ask Aidan. But in the meantime, during the presentation, if there's anything that comes to mind, please do pop a question in the chat. And one final thing to note is just that we will be um, recording the session, just so everyone is aware. So great, um, Aidan, I'll hand over to you to, to present your talk. Wonderful, thanks so much, Jonathan. Um, just while I get my slides up, I'll just say uh, thanks again for inviting me. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the uh, ODI Friday lunchtime series. So um, yeah, it's, it's a real delight to kind of come and chat about our work. And actually a, a few folks from the ODI fed into the report I'm gonna be talking about today. So that's kind of a nice dovetail. Um, hopefully my slides are up now and you can see them okay. Um, and as, as Jonathan said, my name is Aidan. I'm a senior researcher at the Ada Lovelace Institute, and I'll be talking about this report, um, which my colleagues and I published last autumn called The Data We'll See Now, um, part of our work to understand how data about health is extending outside of clinical and medical boundaries and what the consequences of that are. But, but first, maybe I'll just say a little bit more about Ada Lovelace Institute. Um, so we're, we're funded by the Nuffield Foundation and we were established in 2018 and we're a mix of social scientists, technologists, uh, economists, policy experts. Uh, we've got a few philosophers. We've got um, some, some kind of legal people, uh, a couple of people that have worked in software and, and technology backgrounds, so a real mixed bunch. Um, and broadly, we look at the societal and ethical issues of technology across four themes, which are how to ensure algorithms are transparent and can be audited and inspected how to ensure data is governed in a responsible way for the public good, how to tackle injustice and inequalities created or exacerbated by data and AI, uh, and how technology is playing a role in tackling the COVID-19 pandemic. And our work on the data we'll see you now and, and the datafication of health more broadly kind of cuts across a number of these themes, um, but it started from a question which I think is exemplified quite well in a, in, a, in a famous story that many of you may be familiar with, which is the Target story from 2012. Uh, the short version of this story is that the US-based retailer Target um, found out that a teenage girl was pregnant before her own family knew and, and sent them emails advertising various pregnancy-related products. And they supposedly figured this out using loyalty card data from her purchases and recognized that she was buying products which were typically congruent with the kinds of products that people buy when they're pregnant. 
It's quite an impressive digital pregnancy test, but at that time, back in 2012, it caused quite a lot of controversy about how comfortable people are with commercial retailers being able to infer sensitive things about us and about our health from our shopping habits. Um, now, the reality is, is that this teenage girl probably didn't actually exist. No one's really been able to verify that they're, they're real people. Um, but Target were doing this kind of research to see what they could figure out about their customers by analysing their shopping data. Not just if they're pregnant or not, but um, are they on a diet? What allergies might they have? What medical conditions might they have? And more. And as I say, in 2012, this may have seemed a little bit revelatory for quite a few people, um, but now it's really commonplace and it's, it's not just supermarkets that can do this. There are all kinds of companies that are able to use the data they gather about people to better understand them and better understand people's health, which means that a whole range of data from settings beyond medical or clinical environments um, can now be used to understand people's health. And this phenomena, the recording of people's everyday well-being through ever more quantitative data from ever more sources, uh, is what's called by many researchers the datification of health. Um, and it probably won't be a surprise to many of you. In recent years, the number of devices, systems and platforms which gather and use data about health has been growing exponentially, as have the methods through which it's analysed. And in our report, we included a, a graphic that tried to map some of these examples out. Um, it's, it's literally too big to fit on the slide, unfortunately. And this graphic, I know, goes, goes nowhere near to kind of capturing the whole map of, of the datification of health. But Hopefully it illustrates that our everyday activities like shopping, sleeping, exercising can all be reflected in data captured through smartphones, wearables, sensors, web browsers, the type of laptop you use and, and much more, um, which can all, be go, can, can all go on to infer things like our blood pressure, our stress levels, our mental health, our sleep quality, and all of that can go into a range of medical and non-medical applications. Um, and at the Ada Lovelace Institute, we were really interested in what this datification of health means for data collected uh, sorry, it means for the understanding of health and delivery of care, um, because it raises some really, really exciting opportunities, but also some incredibly important ethical questions. And the ethics surrounding medical data is a really well-researched field, but much of that research is focused on data collected in clinical settings, at least to date or historically. Um, so it's focused on, on the ethics of data collected from medical trials or from hospital settings or from doctor surgeries or by the NHS in this country. Um, and the trouble is, is that data that's collected outside of those settings is now causing the field of medical ethics and kind of the emerging field of technology ethics to collide. And this intersection was really kind of the way into this work for, for us at the Ada Lovelace Institute. And we identified two dynamics that are quite important to the datification of health. And the first of those dynamics is that because you can infer things about people's health from data collected outside of clinical settings, that means that knowledge about people's health can extend beyond those clinical boundaries as well. So in other words, it's no longer just doctors, pharmacists or lab scientists that can know about our health. Now, social media analytics companies or smartphone developers can know about our health too. And secondly, the ability to repurpose that data about our health means it can be used for purposes other than our healthcare. So you can use data about health to target adverts at them, like Target was supposedly doing, or to calculate their insurance risk score. Now, I just, I think these kind of um, dynamics are somewhat intuitive, but I think it's useful to see how they work for a couple of examples. So for inferring, um, basically, all kinds of smartphone data can be used as proxies for aspects of people's health, so, and particularly for their mental health. So GPS and acceler accelerometer data, which usually tracks where you are and how you're moving, can actually be used to infer your social and physical activity levels. Wi-Fi data can show how much time you're spending at home or out at cafes or at work or elsewhere. 
How busy your phone calendar is can be linked to your stress levels, and even differences in how quickly or slowly you type or swipe on your phone can be tracked to suggest what your cognitive state is like at any given time. And in 2016, um, a Swedish research study used data like this, collected via this very snazzy blue <laughs> and colorful smartphone app, to show that, that that kind of data can reliably predict depression. In other words, information about a person's health can be inferred from all kinds of data that you wouldn't naturally connect with health. Um, as for repurposing, there are companies like Creditec, which is a, a financial tech company based uh, in Germany, but with clients around the world, and they offer people credit scores without using financial data. Instead, they use data from GPS, social media, web browsers, etc., um, to determine a loan applicant's creditworthiness. Um, and this article I've, I've snipped from a newspaper um, also suggests that they use psychometric data in these credit assessments. So that's making credit scores based on the results from psychological analysis alongside other things. Um, I'm sure some of the ethical considerations here are kind of a little bit obvious or might be just some questions might be cropping up for you, but I'm not here to focus on, on one company or one study. Um, and I really should be clear that when I went to double check my facts about Credit Check this week, their website was actually down. I'm, I'm pretty sure just a technical glitch, um, nothing suspicious. But the kind of more general point I want to highlight through this example is that companies can take data about people's health and repurpose it to do other things that aren't related to health, like give a credit risk score or, or advertise them. So these dynamics of inferring and repurposing mean that data about health is being gathered from pretty much every aspect of our life and it can be used for things other than our healthcare. Or as a tech journalist concluded uh, in 2019, oops, too far, uh, all your data is now health data. This is obviously quite a dramatic statement. It's a, it's a, it's a uh, you know, very clickbaity headline, but it's a resonating statement, I think. And it's this idea that inspired a really core cool question for us, which is what are the legal and practical boundaries of health data? What counts as health data and what doesn't? Um, this next graphic from our report, thankfully, does fit on one slide, and it aims to illustrate this question. So in the middle, we have what we might think of as traditional medical data, like research data and clinical records, which sits really neatly inside existing legal and practical boundaries, boundaries which have existed for you know, many decades and are, and are enshrined in many laws and, and practices. Then we have non-clinical data like those from our smartwatches or commercial genetic testing companies, which are really starting to test those boundaries. So actually in the United States, at least, um, exercise data from your smartwatch um, isn't actually regulated as health data. So even though it's very much about your health, it's regulated differently. So, so these kind of non-clinical health data sets are really testing the boundaries of how we regulate health data. And then outside of that, you have data about health that's inferred from non-health data. So online behavioral geolocation data, the stuff that we think isn't related to health at all, which is way beyond the boundaries of what we currently legally and practically define as, as health data, but it still can be used for health purposes. So this kind of expansion of the boundaries of what is or isn't health data um, has some pretty huge implications. And I'll just highlight a few of the kind of consequences that we explored in our report. Um, so the, the first one I wanted to talk through is that um, people's health is now legible to those outside medical professions. So previously, you could reasonably expect that the only people that could know anything about your health were you, your family, or clinically trained professionals, um, so pharmacists, doctors, nurses, and, and, and so on. Um, or if you'd signed up to a clinical trial study and given your permission for researchers to look at your health data. Now, all of these individuals would adhere to high ethical standards from many decades of research and review and regulation. But now it means that analysts and environments that don't meet those same ethical or regulatory standards can interact with data about our health. And Lynette Taylor, um, a professor at the Tilburg Law School in the Netherlands, describes this concept as legibility, the idea that we're legible to those who have data about us. 
And the question here really is how comfortable are we with people who aren't medical professionals being able to read information about our health? Whether the answer is comfortable or not comfortable, the point is that on a societal level, we haven't really been asked that question yet. Um, a second consequence is that data about our health can be used to make ever more authoritative and influential predictions about our lives. Now, again, we're, we're quite comfortable with the idea of medical professionals having the authority and influence to diagnose conditions or prescribe our treatments. But when you take the kind of authority of medical knowledge and combine it with data-driven systems and apps, it means that those who have any access to data about our health can use that to influence our lives in all kinds of ways. One example of this um, is a kind of app suggested by a fitness company um, that would combine your ad profile, your dietary preferences and your health data, and then track your exercise, log, log when you're running and, and so on, to suggest a kind of tailored, ideal, branded protein snack to you once you've finished your run. It would pop up in the app and go, why don't you have this snack perfectly replenish the calories you've just burned? Um, again, kind of targeted advertising like this is, is really nothing new. And there are quite a few people who are comfortable with the idea of targeted advertising, some who are less comfortable. But really, the question here is about who gets to give advice and make decisions based on our health data. We haven't, again, another question we haven't really answered in the datification of health is really testing that question. Now, the third consequence is one which I alluded to with my uh, kind of concentric circles graph. It's that legal definitions for health data haven't kept pace with the technology. So in the UK and, and Europe more broadly, under the GDPR, health data is a special category data subject to specific considerations and protections. But here's the dilemma that datafication of health poses. If the practical and legal definitions of health data expand to include all the new sources of data about health, what is or isn't health data becomes so blurred that almost all personal data would have to be regulated as health data, which renders the special definitions useless and kind of stifles the way that you can use this data for good purposes. But if those legal definitions aren't expanded, it means that people might become vulnerable to having sensitive aspects of their health information available to be used beyond the safety of kind of clinical best practice and medical regulation. Um, related to this point, actually, I, I came across a paper this week. It's a shame I didn't come across it when we were writing the paper because it was really interesting. Um, but it, it looks at location data ethics. And it kind of raised this question um, that I think is hugely relevant here. Should data laws like the GDPR offer rights to individuals that protect them from unreasonable or unfair inferences drawn from data? So should there be laws to regulate whether a social analytics media company can guess things about your health from the way you behave online? It's a really interesting question. And I think if the, the legal experts can kind of find a, a good answer to it, I think it would be really helpful in this context. So these uh, questions are just a handful of the ones that arise from the datafication of health. There are many, many more. And I'm sure that those of you here will kind of be thinking of lots of other implications and consequences that arise from this. But um, so far, I have mostly just talked about um, how um, the, the, these um, kind of the, the negative consequences. Sorry, I lost my train of thought there. And so what are the harms and concerns that, that arise from all the datafication of health? But as I mentioned before, and as will hopefully be quite obvious to many of you, there are huge benefits to be gained from better health data. Um, and a few that just kind of come off the top of my head as I was pulling this slide together are around improving the quality of care. So better data means better care generally. Um, it creates new opportunities for in-situ health research. So no longer do you have to sign people up to medical trials, bring them to laboratories and, and run specific tests. You can give them trackers and gather data from their everyday life and create a really interesting picture of their health. 
Um, and also it can empower patients. So better data can support patients to understand and manage their own well-being and, and help them kind of look after chronic conditions or, or, or just manage a, you know, their medication, those kinds of things, or as many of us use our fitness trackers for, exercise better. And the list of these opportunities surely, you know, goes on. Uh, it, it, it's really long list and, and I kind of although I've talked about the consequences I want to make it really clear I'm excited for the opportunities that datafication of health poses um, and actually there are a couple of examples of brilliant research that I'd love to just highlight here um, so one is the Cox study or the cancer loyalty card study and this is based at Imperial College London and UCL um, and they're working with a couple of high street retailers to see how loyalty card data can be used to predict ovarian cancer before it develops severely. It's a, it's a condition where early diagnosis would make a huge difference. So it's a really important and interesting study. Um, and then another one where I've just snipped a, a kind of abstract of their, or a title of their paper um, is a project being led by Anya Skatova, who's based at the University of Bristol and the Alan Turing Institute. And she and her colleagues are looking at how people's purchase data might be linked with medical records to better understand links between economic behaviour and physical health. I think these are really fantastic, really exciting projects, and they only scratch the surface, I'm sure, of the positive potential that comes from the datafication of health. But if there is one point to take away from, uh, from this work, from, from this presentation, it's that the difference between the concerns of datafication of health being realised and the opportunities being realised is what incentives drive the datafication of health and what legal and ethical safeguards exist around the use of health data. So these two projects here are um, very much happening within the bounds of academic and clinical research. They're following long-standing traditions of research rigor. They're subject to university ethics boards. They have to be approved by research funders and councils, and they have to ensure that their own credibility isn't tarnished um, by, by unethical or irresponsible research practices. And I've chatted with both the teams and I know they're deeply concerned with the ethics of the work they're doing and trying to make sure that any data use is responsible and the long term consequences are kind of beneficial and, and not harmful. Um, and these kinds of ethical research medical incentives have for a long time driven health research and the responsible use of health data. But as data about health begins to be collected and processed and analysed outside of these highly regulated, highly ethical settings, those incentives of best practice could be replaced by the incentives of profit and power. And while the law lags behind technology, those incentives could drive some concerning or just carefree practices that don't think through the consequences of the use of health data in the right way. And I think the, the, the point I'm, I think that I'm trying to make is that health data is changing and there are some really interesting characteristics that now increasingly apply to it. Um, and so the first characteristic is that health data is increasingly ubiquitous. So we're living in a world where from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep, many of us are using digital devices. And this means that our health can be constantly monitored and analysed in real time all the time because of what can be inferred from the data gathered from those interactions. Second is that data about our health is increasingly comprehensive. So no longer do we just have a kind of recording of our blood pressure over here with our GP surgery and then a kind of track of our sleep patterns on our smartwatch. Now you can combine data sets and sources using kind of machine learning techniques and other advanced statistical and, and, and data processing techniques. You can combine data sets to understand the full picture of a person's health in a single kind of data profile. Um, and this means, thirdly, that data is increasingly personalized. So now you can have huge data sets of millions, billions of data points that exist for single individuals, not just populations. And it means that treatments no longer need to be chosen on you know, what works best for most people, but you can base a medical treatment on what will work specifically for you according to all the data that paints a comprehensive picture of your health. 
And then finally, data about health is increasingly measurement-based. Now, I realize that's a bit of an obvious statement. Most, you know, data comes from measuring things. Um, but but if I'm and 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 if I'm honest, um, I'm still not convinced we found the right term here. So thoughts on the postcard, very welcome. But but what this kind of fourth characteristic is trying to get at is that health data can be increasingly used in new ways, not to just measure symptoms or conditions, but to kind of measure profiles about people and create scores about them for all kinds of reasons to compare against. Uh, other people within a within a data set or to kind of make decisions about them that might not be medical. That kind of scoring aspect that goes underneath the, the, the nature of this data means you can make really kind of calculated quantitative decisions about them. So um, just to kind of, I guess, bring it to a bit of a, a, a close, there's, there's a really compelling argument from the datafication of health and, and these kind of characteristics that are emerging about health data that much as the digital devices we use in our everyday life have created an internet of things that influences our everyday life, um, it's possible we're on a road to an internet of health where our health is constantly monitored, analysed and understood in new ways in real time, all the time, and people outside of hospitals can analyse and use that data for various reasons. And so the question is, if that world comes into being, if the Internet of Health comes into being because data about health extends beyond the boundaries of clinical and medical practice, how do we make sure that the ethics and regulation of clinical and medical practice extend beyond those boundaries too? Thank you very much for having me. I, I hope that was uh, informative and I really look forward to your questions. Great. Thanks so much, Aidan. That was, that was fascinating. Um, I see Hannah's asked a question and I've got a question, but if there's anyone from the audience who has a question, please feel free to raise your hand um, or let us know and um, we'll voice them through to, to Aidan. So um, Hannah, I see you have a question. Would you like to um, ask it or should I read it out? I'm happy to ask it. Um, Aidan, mine's more about the, the sort of people who are on the receiving end or, or the, the kind of people in the real world who, whose data is being collected and whether you have any, um, whether your research has stretched into uh, understanding how they feel about that or what level of understanding or awareness they have around how their data is being used. That's that's a great question, thanks. And um, yeah, I mean, we at the Ada Lovelace Institute have done quite a bit of work on, on public attitudes to, to health data and data more broadly, but there is kind of a, a whole world of organizations out there that are asking these kinds of questions of how do people think and feel about the use of health data. Um, so understanding patient data based at Welcome is, is one of those organizations that I think is doing great work in this space. And we partnered with them on a project last year, um, which kind of asked what do, what do members of the public think is fair when it comes to the use of health data. And in that instance, we were specifically looking at um, kind of NHS data, because there's a really important question of, well, NHS data is used for, for research purposes, and it's not always the NHS, or, you know, actually, it, it, by, ne by necessity, isn't the NHS that does some of that research, it's academics and, and private companies and pharmaceutical companies, because they have really great skills and expertise, but what's fair when it comes to the sharing and, and use of that data, and um, some really interesting things came out of that, about how people feel about privacy and consent and what they want the data to be used for. Um, I have to admit, though, on this question of datafication, so the sort of non-health data being used for health, um, how people feel about that is, I think, a little bit under-researched. And it's something that um, I, I think it's something that I'd really like to be able to explore more. Um, we don't have any firm plans to ask that specific question at the Ada Lovelace Institute, but we've got a couple of other projects um, looking at, at, at kind of health data and inequalities that I'm hoping we can um, explore that question through. It's a, it's a great question, though, because it's such an important part of all of this. 
Thank you. That's great. Thanks, Aiden. Um, I see Matt has a question. I suppose my one kind of touches on what, what Matt is asking. Um, Matt says, where's the demarcation between giving up our data for the wider good and keeping personal, personal ownership of it? And something I was thinking while you were speaking of, um, if we think about personalized healthcare and using data to get better therapies for people, um, and you touched on this, uh, should we be more worried about organizations or corporations misusing the data that is collected about us? Or should we be more worried about people not trusting organizations enough to share personal data that could be used for the greater good? Yeah, big, 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 big questions. I'm just trying to note down a, a few things to touch on. Um, yeah, I mean, I think these these are the kinds of questions that really get at, at, at the heart of it. And this notion of kind of uh, who owns our data and, and who is responsible for it and who do we trust with our data, I think are some of the, you know, biggest questions around in, in this world of data ethics. And I know, I know the ODI does great work on this as well. Um, I think for me, um, so, so we've got this other program of work, which is looking at kind of data for the public good. And we, I think we all know that data has this huge potential to be used for good purposes, but it has kind of this dual potential to be used for bad purposes. It depends who's using it. And actually, um, we, we talk a little bit about this kind of idea of data stewardship. So um, rather than owning data, it's this perhaps some data sources, at least, are kind of more of a collective resource that relate to lots of people. And um, how do you then, then steward that collective resource for good purposes and ensure that it doesn't um, lead to kind of bad purposes. And I'm, I'm massively simplifying this topic because it's my colleagues that are the specialists on, on this, not me. But I think when it applies to health data, um, and actually linking back to that project I mentioned just now, where we asked people what's fair when it comes to the use of health data, um, when you talk to the public about the use of health data, they're like, yeah, absolutely use it for medical research. And even those that are kind of quite concerned about data privacy and things, they can see that having larger, better, more accurate data sets um, about all kinds of health conditions can go into making better products and better understanding health and all these fantastic improvements. The concern is, is kind of what are the byproducts of that process? So in order to, you know, create a fantastic new machine learning model that takes in all sorts of data points and creates predictive diagnostics, you're probably going to need a number of actors involved. So you're going to need, um, I, I, this might sound like a, a roundabout answer but I promise I'm getting there but so so you'll have you know health professionals you'll have the NHS if it's happening in this country you'll have maybe pharmaceutical companies you'll have maybe academic researchers you'll have researchers in charity environments maybe government researchers so all these different actors are involved in the use of health data and I think for me the nub of the concern for so many people in this kind of data privacy versus open data debate is like what are the byproducts what are the secondary uses that can happen with this data and people aren't concerned about data privacy, and, and I'm probably simplifying a little bit, but I don't think people are concerned about data privacy because they don't want it to be used for good purposes. They're worried about the bad purposes that can happen along the way. And they don't perhaps trust pharmaceutical or big tech companies as much as they perhaps trust the NHS or researchers at the University of Manchester or Oxford or, or wherever it may be. Um, so this kind of question of, of stewardship comes down to who are the actors involved in the use of health data? What ethical and regulatory kind of standards that they have to adhere to who ensures that who enforces that what are the consequences if they get it wrong you know if a if a doctor is convicted of malpractice they're struck off and they can't practice medicine anymore if a social media analytics company um, does something a bit dodgy with our data it seems at the moment not a great deal happens to them and I think that's what the nub of the concern is 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 it's not so much how do we 
create strong locks around this data. It's how do we build systems that people can trust and be comfortable with. And there's a really good example of this, which some of you may have heard of called Open Safely, which was a kind of model developed by um, some researchers at the University of Oxford, where essentially it's a it's a uh, kind of data analysis technique where you don't need to take the data away to do the analysis. You go to the data source, you run your code on it, um, and you kind of get insights from it without the people doing the an analysis ever seeing the data. So, you know, an NHS hospital looks after the data, the researchers come in, they ask their questions and all they get out are the answers. They don't see the kind of data underneath. So there are some really fascinating techniques out there that can do the good stuff while also ensuring that the, the, the bad stuff doesn't happen. Thanks, Aidan. Uh, we've got two more questions that have come up in the chat. Um, but I'll just read out two comments from Matt Whitby. He says, I guess this ties into Tim Berners-Lee's idea of solid social link data. And he also said it's tricky, I guess, because uh, good and bad can be subjective based on a person's ideology. So thanks for the comments, Matt. Uh, the first question comes from Stephanie Mazan. Um, Stephanie says, attitudes of people can be influenced by how well informed on the context. Example, I'm thinking of vaccines and people being scared of them. How can I... How can our societies be better informed on data to make informed decisions as opinions? Great, great question. And I'm just not noting down a couple of thoughts. Um, first, I think I just I just agree with Matt. I think um, good good and bad being subjective is is yeah the, the the challenge here. And I think actually linking together, that's why kind of public engagement and consulting people is so important because we need to work out where our societal values are and, and where we can kind of try and get consensus on what good and bad are. It's, it's a really tricky area. Um, and, and actually that does tie into to Stephanie's question about kind of being informed on, on the context. Um, and there's a couple of things there. One is that I think as a, as a, as a society, again, I'm speaking in very broad terms, but what can we do to improve general data literacy? So how comfortable most people are with concepts surrounding how data is collected, how it's used, what can be inferred so that we can all be a little bit more um, you know, comfortable and informed with this, this world that we live in and better able to make choices about our data. So there's this kind of broad point about how do we improve the data literacy of, of, of people across society. But then related to that, um, this question of how do we understand people's attitudes, um, I think I, I, there's some really um, kind of interesting methodologies for this, which we're quite passionate about in the Ada Lovelace Institute, where um, we see the value of things like surveys and polling. You know, you, you go out and you ask 4,000 people what they think on a, on a data topic or a technology topic, and they can give you lots of answers on how much they agree with statements, how concerned they are, that sort of thing, how aware they are, you know, scale of one to 10 or whatever. Those sorts of methods are really, really good for just kind of getting a good sense of like, where, where are people's baseline right now? But but as you say, Stephanie, those are not necessarily the most informed responses because they're just you know pinging off answers on a survey. So some of the methods we're really interested in are more deliberative, more qualitative, where you take a, a, a smaller group of the project, a, a smaller group of people, and you kind of take them through a process where um, you provide them with, with a range of information, you let them speak with experts who, who work in this area, um, you give them time to digest that information, to debate it with one another, and it's all facilitated by, by experts who are very good at kind of not letting, you know, any one viewpoint overtake another, but really considering all the evidence in as balanced and, and discursive way as possible. And then at the end of that process, you kind of work towards some conclusions or some kind of key questions that the group can agree on. And um, again, comes these kinds of methods come with their own caveats, because there's only so many people you can involve, and they're very time intensive, they're very um, resource intensive, but they're a really great way for letting people 
um, grapple with these issues and then come to their conclusions. And um, that's kind of the methodology that, that we use with that project I mentioned before. Um, it's a methodology that we'll use for a project we're looking at on kind of health and technology inequalities um, that, that's kind of going to be coming up in the next couple of years where it's a similar similar kind of thing of how do we take the kind of polling survey quantitative approach but also the qualitative deliberative approach that lets people get into the, the, the weeds of these really complex issues. So um, uh, not a, none of these methodologies are perfect, but hopefully with a combination of them, you can kind of address some of the complexities. Great, thanks, Hayden. We've got some more questions coming in. Uh, the next one's from Manpreet Singh. Uh, Manpreet asks, um, how do you see the datification of health data being heightened, more, more risky for vulnerable populations? For example, organizations collecting health data on children or adults with underlying health conditions. Is there a difference in the data location of health for the average healthy adult where companies may use a state of advertising versus the datification of health data for vulnerable populations where companies might be able to go one step further and be a proxy for medical advice and infer medical decisions? Um, and then in brackets on top of advertising. Yeah, and another kind of huge, huge question, um, really important. And I think um, it's something we, we didn't get the chance to go into in, in depth on the research and on the on the report that we did, which I think is a, a shame and something I would have definitely liked to give more time to. And hopefully we can in some of the future work we're doing. But yeah, I guess there are a, a few dynamics there. I mean, one is that often often when we think of kind of vulnerable groups, you find that either you have lots and lots of data about them or you have very little data about them. So in the health context, one example is you may have a vulnerable group of people who um, perhaps are living with chronic conditions. And so their vulnerability there might be in the fact that they're being, they're, they're shielding from COVID-19 or perhaps um, they're, they're, there are kind of access um, issues in terms of how they can access healthcare and live in society. Um, but these are often, if they've got chronic conditions, these are groups that will have a lot of interactions with the health system. So we've got an awful lot of data about them, um, which is great for the research purpose, but it means that those bad actors that may be out there have an awful lot of data to tap into for advertising and things. So there's a kind of another one of these legal questions about do we need another set of special safeguards, not just around health data, but health data of, of vulnerable um, groups. But at the other end of that spectrum, you've got other vulnerable groups such as um, migrants or, or people who are living kind of um, below the poverty line where they might not have as many interactions with the health system. They might not have access to these snazzy technologies which gather data about their health. And so we're missing data on, on, on those groups. And that means that when you come to doing the, the, the research on, on uh, to understand health conditions, you don't have the data about these groups. And so they won't be as well um, considered in the research. So there's this kind of tricky um, um, thing where you can have both too much data and too little data. And I think the question is, how do you ensure you have the regulatory and ethical safeguards to protect where there is lots of data about these groups? And how do you consult them um, to, to ensure that those people have a say on what they're comfortable with their data being used for? And at the other end of the scale, what work needs to be done um, to make sure that, that those groups where there's not enough data, it's being gathered, it's being plugged into the systems. And, and again, there are lots of researchers. There are some folks at the Alan Turing Institute and at the Wellcome Trust and the Health Foundation Research Institutes based in the UK who are trying to answer this question of how do we, um, how do we, how do we make sure that we have data on groups so that we can better understand the health and, and better in, and improve their healthcare. Great, thanks. The next question comes from Sharon Joseph. Sharon says, 
I would love to understand what the largest areas are for healthcare and data science from your opinion. We surveyed our global data science team and they rated healthcare as the number one area they want to work in. And I would like to give them guidance on where they should be researching, analyzing data. For example, top areas, top companies, and any other ideas on helping them as they look at companies and subsectors in healthcare. Any, any vision on further trends that you see in the area would be very helpful. It's, it's, a, it's a great question. And actually, it's, it's really interesting that healthcare is the number one area um, that, that, that data scientists want to work in. I mean, uh, for us, Ada Lovelace Institute, we, um, a tangent, but I will get to your question. We're, we're not necessarily a health tech organization. We're interested in questions of data and AI across society. But health is one of those areas where these questions are so important that we just simply couldn't ignore it. Um, um, in terms of kind of the the areas that I think are really interesting, I mean, I'm by no means an expert on this, and there are there are definitely people who are you know working in in some of the organisations that I'll hopefully try and mention that are far more expert on this than me. But um, I mean, diagnostics is a big area for machine learning and data science. So how do you um, how do you take novel data sources and, and, and use them to be able to predict and diagnose disease. And there are companies like um, Roche, which is a, a medical diagnostics company who are, are working on this. Uh, Roche is spelled R-O-C-H-E. Um, there's also a, a company called um, Element AI, um, who are kind of um, looking at similar things. How can you crunch all kinds of data sets and combine it with machine learning to do prediction? Um, then you've got server companies which are, are providing services to try and um, automatically um, provide provide kind of like diagnostic tools to people. So there's one called um, Ada Health, coincidentally, no, no relation to the Ada Lovelace Institute. I think they're based in Germany who provide a kind of information chatbot service where you type in your symptoms in it and it says, um, you know, it kind of suggests what your condition might be. Um, and I mentioned Ada Health. There are other companies that provide these services, which I won't mention because I'm not as convinced that they're thinking the ethics through. Ada Health, I think, are good because what they do is they make it very clear that this is just information. It's not a medical diagnosis. You should still see a medical doctor. So they're really thinking carefully about, um, you know, what I was saying before about who gets to give medical advice. Should tech companies get to give medical advice? And I think um, that, that, that there are some organizations out there thinking about that better than others. So diagnosis is a, is a big area. Um, another area is um, kind of treatment, um, uh, discovery of treatments and, and, and things like that. So there's a, there's a company called, I think, Benevolent AI. There are a lot of companies that are called something.ai, um, you know, for obvious reasons. But there's one called, I, th I think it's called Benevolent AI, who are looking at how can you like crunch um, kind of chemical data actually to, to suggest new medicines. And what they're trying to do is like a big part of discovering new medicines, you know, coming up with a new medicine can take decades um, because of regulatory checks, but a big part of it is discovery. It's just trying to figure out what chemical combinations will treat a particular thing. And what they're trying to use is AI to shrink that discovery time down to kind of pinpoint what their interesting areas are. Um, and, there, and there are loads more. I, I apologise that I'm, I'm not as well versed on kind of the innovation end of the spectrum, but yeah, diagnosis, disease treatment, um, imp improving care services as well, just like making 
Um, forgive, forgive, any, forgive me anyone here who works in the NHS, but NHS data infrastructure is probably not as good as it could be. Um, and that data infrastructure is probably not the sexiest end of AI and, and data innovation, but it's one of the most important ends. So actually, if there are great data scientists out there who want to make a difference, they should go into helping build the like back end so that you know NHS trusts up and down the country can speak to one another. That's probably one of the biggest questions that, that's really um, kind of facing, facing us as a, as a landscape. Great, thanks. Um, we've got another question from Matt Whitby. Matt asks, how do you see our ability to validate how good data is? Say something like employment figures. It feels as though data is reported often with no explanation of the methodology behind the data's collection or creation, or creation, meaning you can get seemingly similar data sets which disagree and feed into public distrust of information. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think I think I would say so. Um, those two research studies I mentioned, the the cancer loyalty card study and the um, the other one based at Turing and Bristol, what they're trying to do is verify like if um, all these novel data sources are actually able to do what we think they're able to do. You know, can can using loyalty card data actually predict medical conditions? So um, I think I think those kinds of studies are helping us answer that question of how how valid how accurate is this data um what concerns me is that there might be some um organizations out there who forge ahead and try and like say that that this data can be used to reliably predict things before we've kind of got good consensus that this data is reliable and accurate um so if you know a credit company is is using various data sources to predict someone's health and make a credit-based assessment on that but actually that that analysis isn't that valid that that kind of concerns me um I mean, the question of data validation is is a huge one and cuts across so many sectors. And I think it's even more important in, in this area. So um, I think, again, in doing the actual data analysis is not something that I have a, a particular um, background in. I'm, I'm, I, I'm you know, not a data scientist myself. Um, but I think the question for me is we need to do more of these studies which help us know if, the data can be used in these ways if these kinds of analyses and inferring is accurate. Um, we need more of that before we've got people forging ahead and applying it to, to things. Um, there's, there's a lot of kind of pseudoscience and snake oil out there in the world of AI. There are a million and one things that are saying, you know, facial recognition can be used to say X, Y, Z. That is just pseudoscience. And, and I don't say that facetiously. I mean, you know, it is it is not grounded on actual science it's so flawed but it's being published and people are people are responding to it and my great concern is that I, I hope this isn't the case because um because as i say medical research is a very well grounded field in, in in terms of ensuring that research is rigorous but my concern is that some of the kind of more wild west um data science practices that exist in certain sectors might bleed into to medical research and hopefully that's not the case but that that's one of the another concern in this space Great, thanks. Thanks, Hayden. Uh, I think that's all the time we have for today. I see um, it's now quarter two. We have two comments um, from Matt and Chris, um, very interesting ones, so thanks for posting. But yeah, thanks, Aiden. thanks for your time. That was a, a fascinating um, presentation on a great report. Um, and as you can tell by all the questions, everyone's very interested in the work that you're doing. Um, yeah, thank you so much. I was just scrolling back through the comments and the questions and yeah, um, you know, really great insights from everyone. So thank you so much for joining and it was a, a great pleasure to be here.
Awesome. Great. And thanks, thanks everyone who's joined us today. You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture brought to you by the Open Data Institute.